The Eyes to the Left. Hello and welcome to Eyes to the Left, the Mirror's regular political podcast. My name is Jason Beatty. I'm head of politics of Daily Mirror. And I'm joined by my top colleagues, Kevin Maguire and Dan Bloom. And it's been a week of Brexit. It started with chaos on Monday, continued into Tuesday, and we've had all sorts of drama, shenanigans, bluster from David Davis today. So we're going to talk you through has been yet another difficult, torrid week for the Prime Minister as he tries to negotiate our exit from the EU. So, Kevin, what happened on Monday? It was all going quite well at the beginning, wasn't it, for Prime Minister? Uh, Theresa May thought it was going terrifically. She was going to clear those three hurdles, go off the talks on citizens' rights, the divorce bill and, and Ireland, and it all blew up in her face. So she jets over to Brussels. She's, from... yeah, Juncker and uh, Tusk, there we are, all very, very pally, uh, Number ten is very positive. She thinks she's got a deal on the on the issue of Northern Ireland, that three hundred and ten mile land border, the Republic. They will be on the frontier of the European European Union, the single market, and the customs union when we leave. And she thinks she can say that they will essentially just remain the same as the the Republic. And that and uh, yeah, the Taoiseach's been having his own problems, so he wants to boast about it. It's a victory for him, as he was put it. And that sent the DUP up the wall. There are those ten votes she bought for a billion pounds which she needs in the Bond Parliament. Went absolutely amazing. So just to scroll back a little bit to where we were, Prime Minister is desperate to move on to phase two of the Brexit talks, which is the trade negotiations. There's a big EU summit coming up next week in Brussels, yep. which you want to sign off from the other yep. 27 countries to get there. And the three sticking points were the divorce bill. Yep, which we've gone from go whistle, to, Boris Johnson, 50 billion. 50 billion. The second one is citizens' rights. That's 3 million EU citizens living in the UK. We think we had progress on that. Seems, you know, there's a little bit of jitters around that. It's about how long the deal would last. Yep. Uh, we were five years, they were. And 50. then almost out of the blue, even though. It had been there staring in the face, the elephant room, was this issue of the Irish border. And the EU's always said right from the beginning when they started these negotiations way back early in March this year, they said we have to have, quote, sufficient progress on these three issues before we move to trade talks. And then, Dan, they got to Brussels, it was brief they got a deal, and then it all fell apart because... Because the deal came out just before she sat down for lunch with Jean-Claude Juncker... And as this three-and-a-half-hour lunch unfolded, so did the whole deal, because it went into the Irish press, which is probably some of the worst place it could be, that there was going to be, what Kevin described, regulatory alignment for Northern Ireland and the Republic. That leads to all sorts of fears that, because you've got to put the border somewhere, if you're not putting it between Northern Ireland and the Republic, you're then putting it between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. So this is the Irish Sea border. Exactly. Which the DUP absolutely hate. That is a red line so thick you can see it from space. They <laughs> rang up Theresa May, of course, as, as people know now. In her dinner, she comes back in and says, I'm sorry, no deal. Which shows the power of Arlene Foster and the DUP over Theresa May. She relies on their 10 votes in Parliament. If she doesn't have them, she's stuffed. She has to keep the union, so when they phone and say, you're not going to do this, she has to comply. And Arwini Arwini's, you know, this is the, the Tory party which campaigned warning against a coalition of chaos under Labour 
and Walt talked about you know Nicola Sturgeon pulling the strings of the kind of you know the puppets of Jeremy Corbyn or Ed Miliband both the last two elections, and here we are, we have a prime minister being a marionette of, of Arlene Foster, who seems to be now the most powerful person in the country. Yeah, and strong and stable, you would say, isn't it? And incredibly strong and stable. But it was she thought she'd squared off the DUP, but you can square off Nigel Dodds, their leader in Westminster. That doesn't mean you've squared off Arlene Foster, the First Minister in Belfast. There are rivalries within the DUP. There are rivalries within the unionist community. The DUP doesn't want to be outflanked by the Ulster unionists. The DUP, remember, was against the Good Friday Peace Agreement back in, uh, in 1998. It opposed that peace agreement came in while we were in the European Union with a single market in the customs union, so it made it easy to rub out that border between the two bits of, uh, of Ireland, 26 counties in the Republic and the six in, in Northern Ireland. And the, because Dublin and the Taoiseach were talking about it, they, it almost made it certain that the DUP was going to be against it. That's how they operate. I mean, they are 10 rather odd people, uh, orange men, homophobes, we've called them crackpots a few times yeah. in the paper which they take offence to, so we keep really? doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what's propelled this into the headlines, because it's the human drama rather than just the issues themselves. You've got this incredible story of the DUP wielding this power over the Tories, and just the detail, you have Arlene Foster saying that she was pressing for this agreement that the UK was trying to get for five weeks and the first thing she heard about it was when it leaked to the Irish press which just seems hugely incompetent on the part of the government not to keep them up to speed and then you have her coming out on TV and slagging the deal off while Theresa May is in Brussels and it gets worse number 10 then tell us that Theresa May is going to have a conversation with Arlene Foster and reports suggest that Arlene Foster didn't know this until Number 10 told journalists it was going to happen. And then the phone call didn't happen last night when they said it was going to. It only happened the next morning. You've got this picture so of Theresa May down the street hitting the game, the yes. game on her mobile, going, Come on, Arlene. Yeah, yeah. you've got to answer. <laughs> yeah. But the DUP are past masters of playing uh, you know, the tail wagging whatever big dog is there. But it's for, for May. It's appalling, not only internally because it's now inflamed her own Brex streamers, those on the right, you know, Jane Bruce Moggs, you know, John Redwoods, who thinks she's going to give too much to the European Union in the in the negotiation. She can get the DUP on side, but getting that lot back on side might be even harder. And where's her authority in negotiations with the 27 now when? She can't always well, deliver what she promises. You delighted in pointing out it's not a problem within on our side, it's an internal problem we well, face off. And then we've got this, this big issue, it sounds kind of quite kind of obscure language of regulatory alignment. And and the bind Theresa May was in was because the conditions set down by the EU that you had to sort out, as we said before, citizens' rights, the divorce bill, and Northern Ireland beforehand. On Northern Ireland particularly, the British argument was, well, we don't know what we want until we get to the trade deal. So it was a catch-22. But the hand was forced, so they came out with this idea that we're going to have regulatory alignment, which basically means we have to abide by EU rules. We shadow it. So we, we get all this trouble. We pay that £50 billion. Pounds. You guarantee the rights of European citizens here. Uh, what for? 
when you come out of the customs union and the single market, you're effectively just going to follow the so customs we, union and the single market so without that, ever making the rules. Which completely undermines the central case for Brexit put forward by the, 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 the hardline Brexiteers that we are no longer rule takers, we are rule makers, and we can cut our own trade deals which are more competitive but we, than the ones we have at the moment, but we won't be able to do that if we have to abide by EU rules. Yeah. That is a problem we're in. And you just saw it today, we saw it at Prime Minister's questions, Jacob Rees-Mogg, arch-Brexiteer, member for the 18th century, turning up and saying, you know, this red line is now looking decidedly pink. Mm. He's a fanatic. It's Brexit for Jacob Rees-Mogg and his flock is an article of faith. It's a religion. The impact it doesn't matter as much as as it happens. And she she can't deal with that because she's trying to look at it logically. We know she doesn't believe in Brexit, which is why she can't bring herself to say she'd vote leave in another referendum and endorse government policy. She's trying to make the best of a dreadful job, doing it dreadfully and not very, and not very well. And you can see you come out, where are you going to get a better deal? And if you're going to end the regulatory alignment, what are you going to do? What's that really mean? Why would Jacob Rees-Mogg and those other right-wingers and people like Liam Fox, why would they do it? What they want to do is take away employment rights. So paid holidays aren't guaranteed. They want to roll back the, the social provisions. We know their red tape is other people's health and safety. We know what they want. And in a way, the DUP, chucking their toys out of that pram, revealed the hand of the other extremists. Yeah, I think this is a really important point. Not only has Theresa May been forced to show her hand, but the Brexiteers are now having to say what they want as an alternative. And it's not pretty. That, that's the key thing here. So, there's, sorry, Dan. There's, there's a real problem about what happens next, because uh, you had Theresa May at Prime Minister's questions today saying it all depends on the second phase of the talks. So she's back to saying that again. So for all this positive talk of we still think we'll get a deal by the end of the week, it's already Wednesday afternoon and she still hasn't been to Brussels, and she's already clearly saying to MPs, no matter what I get by the end of the week, this Northern Ireland issue isn't going to be fully sorted out until, well, after Christmas. Yeah, and as as you rightly say, she was meant to be going back to Brussels today for Mm -hmm. talking to Trump or Juncker. That's been put on permanent hold. She may go tomorrow, we don't know. She's still got to resolve this Northern Ireland issue, and they are running out of time. This is the key thing. They've got to try and get a deal on the 15th of December next week to move to phase two. And if they don't move to phase two, the next big EU summit is March. And that's too late because a lot of businesses, they've already drawn up contingency plans. They're saying, we're not going to invest in the UK if you haven't got us a deal by December. We're out of here. And that means jobs going bad for the economy, bad for prosperity. And don't forget, she wanted that deal in October. And that flew by and just didn't happen. And she's even got her own civil servants screaming for detail because they have to plan almost a year in advance just to recruit people like border officers and immigration status, people who go through the the three million EU citizens, paperwork, that kind of thing, just to be ready in case there's no deal. So it's going to cost the taxpayers a lot of money. Well, it already is. set aside in the budget? It was two billion. Three billion. Three Three billion billion budget on top of the 700 million they've already spent. This is proving quite an expensive divorce. Well, it's it's not 350 million pounds a week extra for the NHS, which I think was down the lever bus and was pivotal in the in the referendum. Three billion being spent now on top of more than half of half another billion. This is this is mounting quickly. It was more than the extra money put into the NHS by Philip Hammond, the, the Chancellor, and the bill's only gonna go up. But if 
you can pay for you can pay for those bills in terms of you know, the, the customs officers, the border guards. Uh, you're talking about Dan, but can you imagine when big companies start moving out key head office people who are high earners, pay a lot of tax, they send them over the English Channel because they want to be in the single market? We're gonna we're gonna suffer hugely, and it might it might be you know your or my job, anybody listening their job. But if it's the jobs of people who pay lots of taxes, we will all take a hit in the in the economy. And that's going to happen. She knows it's going to happen. And talking of taking a hit in the economy, we don't know how bad it's going to be because David Davis, in one of the most extraordinary performances I've ever seen by a cabinet minister in front of MPs, today suggested, after having weeks and weeks and weeks, and Dan can talk us through this because I know he's been looking at this all day, but they had all these assess- impact assessments on how Brexit was going to hit various sectors of the economy, and then he pops up down and does what? He says they were never impact assessments in the first place. So, so it, he has fought a he. Here's so, how it went: David Davis, more than a year ago, is talking to MPs, and MPs say you're not prepared for Brexit, and he says yes, we are. We're looking at more than fifty different areas of the economy. And in some cases, he did say how it's going to be impacted by Brexit. So MPs think, great, let's get our hands on these studies and see what's going to happen. They fight a long battle with David Davis, who doesn't give them the studies because he starts saying, oh, well, you know, they're they're not quite ready. They're being redrafted. They're commercially confidential. They could harm the Brexit talks. But they did go, he said, into excruciating detail, quote-unquote, and he said they were forensic, quote-unquote, and his department was so sure they existed, they even demanded a retraction from a paper which suggested that two Brexit ministers hadn't read them. Yeah, the Financial mm. Times. Yeah. It's, so, it's, it's, it's astonishing. It's, so, it's Brexit fantasy. It's the dog ate my homework, except the homework was never written, and he's admitted it wasn't written. It is utterly, utterly astonishing. It's, he's faced rulings by the Speaker, he must produce it, I'll produce it. He's had votes in Parliament, I'll produce it. Why didn't he just stop and say, we haven't got it? We can't produce it because we haven't got it. And I suppose the truth is, and the accusation now, is he lied. And that is the accusation. He lied by saying they've done it. And it's absolutely incredible that we could come out of the single market and the customs union without any studies being impact on, on the impact on the economy. It's Again, it's Brexit as a religion, a faith, a fanaticism, a zealotry. We're just going to do but it. Come on, man. Isn't this gross incompetence, is my view? You're about to undertake the most important kind of series of negotiations with affecting this country for 75 years, and he's ordered no analysis of the consequences of that for, for, for business, for people's jobs. I, I just, I mean, that's just a dereliction of duty. It is, but if you're David Davis, the Brexit secretary, at the moment you would rather be judged incompetent than contempt of Parliament, and you would lied to Parliament because then he could be made to resign. So he's now having to go around just, uh, oh yeah, I'm stupid, I'm daft, uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Brexit loon. I, I, I haven't done it yet, I'm incompetent. But that's where we are now. It, it is. It's like nothing I've seen in politics before. We are in completely uncharted territory here. Well, the tone he's taken in trying to explain why he's not going to publish these or why they didn't exist in the first place is incredible. He said, we don't need impact assessments. He said, I'm not a fan of them because they usually don't work. And it was very helpful. He gave the analogy of the financial crash in 2008. So I'm sure a lot of people will be hoping that Brexit isn't too similar to that. <laughs> As he said, well, that if you take that, 
None of the economists predicted it because it changed, changed the paradigm, he said. It changed the model and how everything works. So what's the point? And he said, we will get round to doing some as we come to those points in the negotiation. But when you look at how glacial this has been, where it's taken months just to get these reports out, he first mentioned them in September last year, so well over a year ago. How on earth they think they're going to go through negotiations with just 15 months to go and get these reports done and make them accurate and get them to MPs if MPs want them. It's just we, unthinkable. We thought you didn't want to produce them because they would be negative. And undermine the case for Abs- Brexit. For Bre- which there is no economic case. public faith in Brexit. Absolutely. And I suspect that is why he hasn't produced them. He hasn't had them commissioned. Because in those sectors, Hillary Benn, the Labour chair, the all-party Brexit select committee, was going through the sectors. Uh, have, you, have you done it for the aerospace industry? No. Have you done it for the automotive industry? No. Have you done it for financial services? No. Hasn't done it for any of the areas. I, I think he's three said, big pillars of the British economy. Thousands, probably millions of jobs depend on them, generating huge wealth. And he knows they will all take a hit with Brexit. And I think, as a Brexit secretary... Rather like Theresa May saying she couldn't vote for the for the for, to to leave in a second referendum is they're inflicting harm on the British economy and they know they're inflicting harm on the British economy. She she May wasn't a, wasn't a Brexiteer. She's a Remainer, but he was a Brexiteer. He was one of those who was selling his pig swill to us. And now they've seen the economic consequences of what they're doing. Yeah, horrific. They're, they're, they're swallowing an awful lot of pride Brexit here, aren't they? They've had to agree to a transition period, they've extended negotiations, they've had to agree to a 50 billion divorce yep. bill, they've given ground on citizens' rights, yep. which will have the European Court oversee when we don't know exact details. So it's concession after concession after concession, but none of them have said they're going to resign over this yet. They're all, they're all kind of doing it. No, because, because again, it is an article of faith. It's a religion to them. They are fanatical about it. And I think you, they would have those in the Brexit elite who sold it to the country, the Brexitreamers, they would have no credibility if they now turned round and said, look, sorry, uh, we were utterly wrong. We made it up as we, we went along, we can see. And it's going to cost you your job, your income, your livelihood. It won't do what we what we said. They're kind of they're kind of stuck. But I think there's a bit of shame around David Davis that you wouldn't find in Boris Johnson, Liam Fox, or Michael Gove. I, I, I you can almost feel his weariness now. He knows it yeah. is not it is not what the body language suggests a defeated man today. Yeah, he's been comprehensively outmaneuvered by Barnier. He said there'd be a huge row. If they made us discuss those three issues first, then he agreed that to that. That was summer, wasn't it? And he, yeah, he's lost every single argument down the line. He must know. He, he probably can't bring himself yeah. to admit it publicly. He's, but he must know. Yeah, he's folded more quickly than Sutherland's defence, has Oh, he? that is pretty <laughs> quick. Now, now, on to Prime Minister's questions, Dan. I, and intriguingly... Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who's avoided Brexit by and large at, at Prime Minister's questions, decided to go talk about it. Round it. He went straight in on it. He talked about it two weeks in a row. I know. It's, it's incredible. Now, is he is he getting more confident about it? Is this because Labour's position is clearer, or does he just see a, an open goal from which to attack the Tories? What's, what's going on in Corbyn's mind? I think it... The toughest question I've ever going to ask you. Mm, I think it might be on 
fair for me to say that Labour's position is clearer, although clearer than what is always up for debate. Labour, the Tories delight in pointing out that various Labour spokesmen, front benches, have said different things that can be interpreted in different ways and imply a completely different Brexit policy because they're tiptoeing a very delicate line and trying not to come down on one side or the other. The latest one is about saying we should leave the single market on the table. What exactly they're leaving on the table, they're not saying. So it's very difficult, and I think that's why Jeremy Corbyn has not mentioned it before. I think probably he's not gone in on it two weeks in a row because his party's policy is clearer. I think he's gone in on it because it is. you couldn't go in on anything else. When there's such chaos in the government... It's Labour's job to hold that to account, isn't it? And it's, you know, politically, they would be foolish not to try and take advantage of it, even if a bit of that fire rebounds on them for not having an entirely clear policy themselves. Okay. And how did he do today, Kevin? I think he didn't do very well. I think Theresa May tied herself up in knots, although she was quite clear, we're going to be out of the European Union, going to be out of the single market, going to be out of the customs union. We'll see, but she said she said all those got some stick from her own side, as we said earlier. I think that the problem with Jeremy Corbyn is, I mean, opposition's a pause. But if you want to be an alternative government, what would you do? And I don't believe he's clear in his own mind. Whenever he takes on Theresa May and the Tories on the economy, public sector pay, public services, the NHS, education, universal credit, we know what he would do. We know where he's coming from. So his argument is strengthened. It's reinforced from that. On Brexit, how can he say, how dare you leave that customs union we would leave to? You can't. And so he can say it's a shambles, and it is a shambles. What would he do differently? And Keir Starmer, the Shadow Brexit Secretary, has been working hard behind the scenes to move Labour into a more Euro-friendly, more of a Remainer position. He's not quite there yet. He personally would like to stay in the single market. He personally, I believe, will stay in the customs union. Uh, I, think I don't think Corbyn is there and Labour on there. Labour's still a Brexit party. Yeah. Labour would still be heading for Brexit too. And they still call. have this dilemma that an awful lot yeah. of Labour seats, the people in those seats, voted to leave. And, and he can't, you know, he doesn't want to kind of alienate one constituency of the Labour Party just to gain a few more votes amongst the Remainers. That's the problem. No, here's the problem. He's got, he's got, the, he's got the seats with the most uh, ardent Remainers and the seats with the biggest majorities for leave. And that, for any political leader, is a, is a terrible uh, contradiction and a pull. But if he's a conviction politician, he's got to go out and argue his case. He's got to go to those Labour heartlands and he's got to make a case better than he made during the referendum. It was Cameron's referendum. Cameron lost it because he only got a third of the Tory votes in, two thirds were out, two thirds of Labour uh, voters were, were in, a third were out. But Corbyn has to go to those seats and argue the case for, in the customs union, in the civil market, and ultimately, I believe, why Britain would be better off remaining. He's got to go make the case. If he's a conviction politician, you might be able to do it. But at the moment, what would you do? What would you do, Jeremy Corbyn? I think it's a, really, you oppose something, what would you do differently? is a fair question and you want to answer. And he, he can't attack her with any real conviction until he says where, where his position is, what he would do. Yeah, he, he went kind of broad brush at Prime Minister's questions. I mean, his first question was, was quite a good one, but borrowed from a Labour backbencher the day before about Liam Fox saying, you know, this is going to be yep. the easiest negotiations yep. in history. You know, what went wrong, Prime Minister? That, that got a laugh. His second question was unintelligible. Finally, he got on to the David Davis 
kind of uh, discrepancy we were talking about. You got on a bit late on that. But it was a little bit late, but it, it, it worked. But the, the real effectiveness of Prime Minister's question was actually he didn't have to do very much for, for, for Theresa May to trip over her own shoes. I mean, uh, I mean her, 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 her statement that the negotiations are progressing very well got a, a huge laugh, but not the laugh she was intending. It was a laughing at her, not with her. And then she just said, well, you know, there's just one or two small points which need to be overcome to get a move on to trade talks again, another big laugh, but not. We would have probably learned more if uh, Arlene Foster had taken the Prime Minister's question studying for Theresa May. We might as well, uh, <laughs> well deal with it. Someone said yeah. Theresa May was standing in for Arlene Foster. Yeah, this you week. know, we, we, we got the monkey rod and the organ grinder off them. Yeah. Uh, and then we've just to round up the Brexit misery, we've got Philip Hammond this afternoon appearing before the Treasury Select Committee, ostensibly to talk about his budget. And he comes out with two, two factors which are going to, uh, one is going to anger the Brexiteers because he said we'll still pay the 50 billion divorce bill even if we don't get a trade deal. Now that probably is legally correct, but I can see that going down very badly with the, uh, the slightly more frothy mouth members of his own party. Now that isn't nothing as agreed until everything is agreed, is it? Yeah, and, and then I thought more interestingly from my point of view, he, he said, uh, we still haven't had a cabinet discussion on what we want to achieve in phase two of negotiations. So now, 18 months on from the vote, nine months almost on since they triggered Article 50, and we have no idea what their plans of Brexit are. This is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, they have no idea. Again, but there's no unity. It's an argument you will never get unity around that cabinet deal, because in the end, you cannot both be remain and leave. You can't. You've got to have a, a position, and they are just fundamentally split. Go Johnson, Fox, Davis, Grayling, Chris Grayling, uh, Penny Morden, presumably, who is the National Development Secretary, she was a leader. They, they can't go along with what they see the main agenda. And Hammond's seen the sums in the Treasury. He knows the hit the economy is going to take. It's, it's, it's a David Davis impact assessment fantasy to pretend it's going to be good for Britain. So just a couple of quick questions. One, will May get a deal to move to phase two of the talks by next week, do you think? And two, how much trouble is May in? Is this, is this bad for all? Is she still going to just kind of keep clinging on despite all the disarray? I, I think it's 50 50. It sounds like fence sitting in a weird. It's, I think it's 50 50 on whether the, the other partners allow you to move forward, the other 27. But by saying you can move forward doesn't mean you move forward. And I just say, well, you can, but when you're going to do it, and what will the deaths be? I thought May would survive until after the Brexit process, so at least be there until March uh, 2019. I'm not so sure of that. She's looking so weak and feeble. And if you're a Tory, you must begin to wonder, is this the best we can do? Should we now take the risk, rule the dice, and see who else we can come up with? Because whoever it is can't be worse than her. And Dan, what's your view? So I think when she stands with Jean-Claude Juncker of the EU and he says, I'm hopeful we can get our sufficient progress still, even after all that drama, I think there's a reasonable chance that they'll agree they can move on, but it's just like Kevin said, moving on isn't really moving on. They haven't planned very well for phase two. Theresa May said herself that Northern Ireland won't be fully sorted out in phase one, so it may just be a sort of finally signing on the dotted line, but really all the work is still to come yeah, after Christmas. 
key to this is this idea of regulatory alignment, because it means effectively we're staying in the customs union, we have to abide by evils, so I just cannot see the Brexiteers in the cabinet stomaching that. And don't you? forget, they'll all go home to their families and have some nice big dinners and bottles of wine over Christmas, the Brexiteers, and start stewing and thinking about where they are, because that's what we all do over Christmas. They'll think, where is this going? And, well, is Theresa May the right person to lead it? But of course, it would be a huge gamble for them to try and oust a leader during the Brexit process. So, some some Tory MPs yes. speculate she uh, she might uh, suffer ill health and have to go. She might go on another walk. Yeah, Ooh. don't come back. But anyway, are you going to answer your own yeah, two questions, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> move on. Oh, how cool of you! What will happen? I I think they might get a deal to move on. Um, I'm more pessimistic, and well, not pessimistic in one word. I I I. I don't think her shelf life as long as I thought it was, let's say, a couple of weeks ago. I, I mean, we always thought she'd go by December 2019. I can see that we coming forward. I, but you know my predictions, Kevin, but always wrong. Yeah, no, I'm not <laughs> going to put money on us staying on in <laughs> Anyway, thank you for listening. Uh, do go to our website, uh, mirror.co.uk forward slash eyes, that's A-Y-E-S. Uh, leave some comments, uh, sign up, let us know what you think. Um, or you can follow me on Twitter as at JBTMirror. Kevin on Twitter is... At Kevin underscore Maguire. And Dan... At DanBloom1, just to be difficult. And we'll be back next week, hopefully for a kind of Christmassy roundup of the year. So thanks for listening. The eyes to the left. <laughs> <laughs>